0: Right, I'll start. Yeah. Good evening. I'm Shane. I'm a furniture conservator restorer in Sydney, Australia. Good
1: morning. My name is Harry. I am a furniture maker in Bristol, England.
0: Sweet. Woo! This episode is not a proper episode, I guess. the The thing is, it's a little bit different because we did finally get some questions in. We got a grand yes. total of two questions, so we so will be yeah, answering. Entirely, entirely overwhelmed. We're basically going to. There's there's a couple. I want to comment on a few things in the last episode. I when I was editing it, I Please. was listening back. There were a few things that I really wanted to just add to that conversation, but not enough to lead a whole new conversation. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna present some of those things to you, but I think that's gonna wrap up quickly, and then we'll look into the two questions that we have, and then we'll do a catch up, and then and uh, well, that'll be it. Awesome. We'll yeah. So the last uh, the last Go episode we did was made to last, which was just all about that that concept of longevity and making things to last and what to consider. And you know. from my perspective, there were two things that I thought. we're really missing i guess both of them kind of come from the opposite end of made to last which is Mm. decay i guess like the natural deterioration of things or the unnatural deterioration of things but i guess the flip side to made to last is how do things actually break down and decay how do things not last i'm curious because you studied with us at west dean yeah were you told much about the the quote-unquote Ten agents of deterioration
1: no no okay not not at all actually not at all definitely something i would have liked to have been part of and I, I i wonder whether that is somewhat intentional because the course that i was doing is meant to i guess on the whole progress into the course that you were doing mm-hmm. sometimes so maybe that's an intentional intentional thing but i do think if if the student quite clearly expresses no interest in moving into that next bit. There are certain things that should be carried backwards that should be covered. Yeah, maybe this is one of it, them yeah. as well. Oh yeah. I, I'm not surprised.
0: Impossible. I'm not surprised by this because yeah. agents of deterioration are, they are very much a kind of a conservation thing and they're very much almost a curatorial conservation thing. So, you know, at, at yeah. West Dean, we had the, the staff that was looking after the artifacts of the house. Right. So, it's yeah. the kind of thing that they presented to us that they would think about when they were trying to oh, ensure right. the longevity of of the collection essentially yeah. so the 10 agents of deterioration are basically things to consider the the book the book that the the UK National Trust put out has them listed yeah. in it very very nicely so they're they're things that in that regard you're considering not necessarily They weren't written by people who were making new things and thinking about how they would decay. They were designed by people who were looking after collections to define ways that things were deteriorating, which has, you know, mixed value. Um, And there is some of them are like obvious. So, you know, fire is one of them, obviously. Yeah. That's a thing. But you've got you've got physical force, thievery, uh, vandalization, fire, <laughs> flooding, pests, pollutants. And then, I mean, those are your kind of obvious ones, I yeah. think, anyway. Uh, and then you've got your more standard, so long-term ones. So light, light deteriorates things. Temperature, temperature fluctuation, or it being an inappropriate temperature for the material. Relative humidity, variations in relative humidity. That's a huge one. And then just neglect and disassociation, which I always find interesting. Disassociation is kind of one of the most intriguing agents of deterioration in that disassociation isn't that the material itself has decayed, but that the meaning has been lost. So, for instance, at at West Dean, I think there was the, the giraffe head up on the wall, right? Yep. There was no record left. Of, of where from memory where that had come from or whether that had any relevance to the collection at all and that no. complete lack of history associated with that is referred to as disassociation. That object has been completely disassociated from its value and its history. And I find that one really interesting. Because that's one of those things like we were talking about in the last episode. Where you have something that might be made really well. But if it loses yeah. its quote-unquote value, it does... Then it's does not going to stay de- around. Absolutely. It's lost some... It's deteriorated in some way. So I find it really interesting that that's included in that. I think sometimes yep. when I was making things or repairing things previously, I would kind of be making things with this nervous feeling that there was going to be some sort of unknown element later that might lead to the deterioration of my, my object that I just am not taking into consideration.
1: You mean unexpected thing because of the work you've done or because of something you haven't spotted? Because yeah,
0: I, right. I really genuinely didn't know enough yet to know how things broke down. Like in my mind yeah, and and actually teaching finishing classes, I've, I feel like there's this feeling that you're gonna do something and then it's gonna do something later on that you don't even understand why it's doing that. Like it is just, it's just gonna flake away with that material or or something's yeah. gonna happen that's just un, unknowable when you first get into it. But when you look at this list, one of the nice things about it is it's really concise and it's really yeah appro- like approachable. Light, heat, temperature, yeah, water, steel fire, stealing. Yeah. And I <laughs> I think that that could potentially be a really useful place to start. Yeah. I guess I don't know if, if if you were to try and create yourself your list for what to what to think of in the future to make sure that you were you were bolstering your product against, you know, future elements. Do you think a list yeah, like that is not... helpful to you or do you think that that's purely just for curia- curatorial purposes?
1: Yeah. Good question. I I'm just reading through one of the lists now on the museum's website, and I I do think it's useful, very useful to consider in making something to last. Um, some of it is less relevant than others. For example, stealing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like like not going to make it not valuable, so it's don't want to be stolen. I'm not going to make it fireproof either. Either. <laughs> Yeah, because it's wooden a wooden furniture. piece of furniture. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but definitely, it's definitely interesting to look through. And I think it's a great point, a great place to start this list. If, like, like we we touched on in the last episode, kind of prioritising things in terms of making something last. And I think yeah. this is a really good place to start, even if maybe it doesn't have much effect on on the way you design something or the way you make something in material or techniques or whatever it might be but just to to have it considered i've now read this point that light uv radiation is going to damage damage my piece in some way there's going to be some sort of deterioration so maybe i can give a more informed recommendation to my customer on how they should care for the piece so it doesn't even necessarily affect the way i make it but the way it's cared for through my recommendation. So I think I think it's a fantastic thing for every maker. I didn't know anything about it until this morning when you mentioned it to me. I, didn't, I had no idea what you were talking about. I think it's great. I, I've got I a, great. a notes on care document that goes with yeah. every piece of my furniture. And mm-hmm. after reading this list, there's definitely some things that I'm going to add now. So, I mean, that says it all. It, it's relevant to the maker as well.
0: I, I would be interested in seeing a version of it Li- written or if somebody has made a version of it that is designed towards the maker that doesn't include things yeah. that are clearly designed like flood prevention you know that's not something that you're concerned about but but things like a nice clean list yeah. like this for things to consider with water resistance yeah. you know light resistance and it's not to say you know oh you need to choose materials that will never decay in light you just need to be aware of what materials you're choosing for what setting but it would be. I would really find that fascinating to, for someone to put something together like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Really great idea.
0: And in that same regard, I guess the other, the other point I wanted to mention is that deterioration. Yeah. In the last episode, I, I, I posited that 300 years was a good <laughs> amount of time for a piece of furniture, which I received zero comments on. I totally thought someone was going to come back to me on that. And be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I felt like me just like saying, yeah, 300 years. That's the period of time that a piece of furniture should last. (laughs) It was a bit... Shane "Eh, Shane told me so. (laughs) But one of the interesting things about deciding that 300 years is enough is that you've decided that at some point your furniture is going to decay. Like that's. Yeah, you've accepted that. You've accepted an endpoint, which I think is interesting. I don't like the idea that the endpoint is 10, 20 years from now, but I think that no. accepting an endpoint is an interesting idea. And in terms of Made to Last, one of the things that when I listened back to that episode, I thought we didn't touch on at all was materials that are that last too long in terms of like your plastics that are still you know tiny bits of plastics are continuously found throughout the ecosystem because they absolutely do not break down and some uh, volatile organic um, compounds that go into the atmosphere and do not break down so made to last like the concept that it will last forever isn't intrinsically a good concept and i i'm i'm gonna ask you again i guess as the maker yeah how would you where do you take that into account
1: yeah it's an interesting one i think it kind of goes hand in hand with with one of the things we were talking about which like you said if it lasts forever it's not intrinsically good because people aren't going to want it forever so Mm -hmm. maybe this this piece of piece of wood with an epoxy pour down the middle. Maybe that's gonna, or at least the pour is gonna last forever. But people aren't gonna want that in their house forever. So yes, it's gonna just end up in the ground. So, is that good? No, not at all. But obviously, that it's there's no perfect answer to that question because, like like you said, um, kind of accepting a an end point or I can't remember the word you use, but accepting a like a finite life for your piece, mm-hmm. is, is an interesting concept because you can end up, I think, kind of contradicting some of the things that we were considering last time, maybe. Like like maybe some some of the things what I'm considering with repairability and kind of reversible materials. In doing that, am I accepting an end point? Am I even considering that end point? I, I don't know the answer to that, and it's a really difficult one. And I, and I don't think it's often considered. As a, as a maker, I don't think other makers are necessarily thinking about the endpoint of their piece. Definitely less so than they're thinking about the repairability of their piece. Uh, mm. So my answer is I have no idea, Shane.
0: I remember <laughs> I was speaking with... Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that answer. That's the answer we have to You're everything. Welcome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I was speaking with um, a guy in Canberra, Nikola Rubenis who I think is great. Mm. He's been very much involved in reuse, repair, creative repair concepts in Australia. And one of the things I remember being surprised by when he mentioned it to me, because when he and I were talking a while ago, I was in this mindset of repairability, making it to last. You know, you make it so it's repairable, people repair it, it can last forever. And he kind of said, even if it's, you know repairable at some point it's going to end up trashed uh, almost 100 yeah. percent likely that at some point it will end up in the ground and so you need to be thinking about what happens at that point when it breaks down are those materials reusable can it be remade into something else can it be you know composted what is going to happen to it at the very end of its life cycle and i i've always been focused as a conservator in making sure that things continue i i really don't have a good answer for how to consider the end point of an object the only thing that i like is you know if you make it out of wood and you make it out of semi-natural materials then you know, at least there's that. But that's about as far as I've considered.
1: Yeah, I think I'm in a similar vein, really. That's as far as I've gone with it. And uh, do you think it's true for a restorer or conservator as well to be thinking about the end point?
0: More often than not, no, because if you're employing a restorer or conservator, it, you're doing so because you want your piece not to end. That's the entirety yeah. of, of our job. Our, we conserve and we restore. We, we are... Coming in to work on an object, and if we've been hired to work on an object, it, it, yeah. it's potentially going to last. There are scenarios I know of where conservators and curators and owners will have a conversation about a piece that was intended to decay and what to do about it. But I only know of those in theoretical elements. I think most of the time when you're working on an object, it's with the effort to do the best you can to stabilize it so that it will continue to last as long as possible. And more often than not, just... the advice that I will give to a client is based around what I think will give that object the best chance. For instance, um, just today, an object came in that needed uh, leg stabilization. And in the process, I noticed that one of the parts of the cabinet had been replaced with a cheap pine offcut essentially, and had been cut to yeah. the wrong size. And it was gonna be quite a bit more money for me to replace that with a proper material of the right size. But yeah. if we didn't make that the right size, we were basically doing a kind of a bodgey repair to get everything to sit right. Mm. And so it, it was, I wanted to make the effort to, to explain that, the, that to give this piece the best chance of lasting forever for as long as possible, I almost said forever there, for as long as possible, <laughs> that, that this was the, the right course of action. So almost always in my my work, I'm thinking about how to make it last and very rarely ever uh, how, what to do with it when it's dead. In At the Bower, though, on the other hand, that's often what they're thinking of. They're thinking this piece is being brought to us because... It's at the end of its life. Somebody's gotten rid of it. What can we do with it? Or these materials? Or can we reshape it? Can we reform it? Yeah. Can we make it something new? Which I think is, which I think is fantastic. I think upcycling gets a bad rap sometimes, but I like the idea of, of making a piece that someday gets upcycled into into something else. I think yeah. that's probably a painful thing for a lot of makers to imagine, but I kind of, I like it
1: yeah I think that's something that me and you spoke about early on at Westine the kind of the idea to consider that bits of the piece that I was making might be reused for something else, and it really made me consider and i I was thinking about kind of what you're doing to each piece of wood and what makes it unusable in the future, so like keeping thickness and width in boards that you can do to make those a useful resource in the future I don't know if you remember talking about that but it's something that definitely stuck with me and I think about it in designs quite a bit um, and it kind of links back to the predictable joinery choices as well kind of if those materials are predictable they are what they look like they are it feels like I'm giving that a better chance of if nobody wants that piece of furniture you you can but hope there's a furniture maker that's going to think that's a nice piece of timber and it's wide enough, thick enough that I can take it apart and use it for something so I think that's an interesting point as well
0: yeah, I think that one of the things I've noticed in this field is, is sometimes I have to fight my own ego to make good yeah. choices I have to fight this idea I want my piece to be cherished so much that it's in a museum and it lasts yeah. forever, like that's I don't want to admit it but that's kind of deep down an absolute desire you have to get past that to make that decision to say you know i'm okay with the idea that it lives its life in this form and then gets remade into something else or that you know yeah i expect it to be used for as long as possible and then when it's not it will decay in landfill that's fine I think that's a really hard thing to confront, yeah. and I definitely don't think a lot of people have to. They, obviously, you don't have to consider any of that, but I definitely don't think a lot of people no, of do. No, or maybe they do. I don't, I don't know. Very, I don't know. We
1: need to speak to more people. <laughs> Probably. Let us know in the comments if you think about this <laughs> when you're making stuff. <laughs> what comments? Oh uh, yeah, send us a message.
0: Please send us messages. Do something.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you can answer yeah. these questions that we just that we have no idea how to answer. Yeah, them. I I hope you haven't give come a, to give us, us with us the your idea thoughts. that we're going to
0: give you answers. No
1: madness. Gonna <laughs> gonna propose things for you to answer.
0: Speaking of which, um, I think that's a that's about it for want, all I yeah. wanted to wrap up on that.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that was a good addition. A couple of things that we didn't touch on. Do you want to move yeah.
0: on to the questions? I would love to.
1: Nice. Do you want me to Which start way? with with a question from from Mr. Mark? Mr. Mark. Mr. Mark. We met Mark during our time in Kyoto. He was on the course at um, Tsui Kasha with us. Mark's wonderful. Yeah. We love him. Yeah. Mark writes, I'm going to read this word for word. Well, most timber framers at least in Europe, seem to be rather employed. (laughs) Well, seem to be rather employed, whereas fine carpenters seem to be self-employed. At least in your case, Harry, I don't know if you, Shane, are employed or self-employed. So here's his question. What made you go independent versus being employed? Is it the risk versus safety? Or rather, what is your opinion about being employed versus self-employment? Kind of in the field of, in our fields, essentially, he's a carpenter, he does a lot of constructional carpentry as far as I'm aware. Is that right?
0: Yeah, you? a lot of um, uh, yeah, timber framing, house building sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, he was kind of doing an apprenticeship when we knew him. I'm not sure if he's still on that program. So I I assume it's a time for Mark that he may be coming to the end of that and he's got
0: some choices to make. I'm not sure. From memory, he he went to Japan to to garner like a that Japanese method of construction and joinery yeah. that he wasn't getting from from his no other work so i'm really curious to yeah see where i think he, where he's at with
1: that he, he seemed somewhat kind of dissatisfied by the level of care maybe precision i'm not sure um of the work that he was being taught and asked to do in his apprenticeship he lives in luxembourg is that right ah. i want to say luxembourg that might be true i'm sorry mark if that's wrong <laughs> yeah. um, in general sorry mark <laughs> <laughs> just in general sorry sorry matt do you want to give your thoughts on that on this question first
0: yeah i i love this question because um it's yeah. not the type of thing that i would think to to bring up and discuss but it is a really interesting one Definitely, particularly because a lot of people who i know who go into this field do go into the self-employment route most people i know in, in woodwork and furniture who want to achieve at a finer level, which is what he describes it as, finer carpentry or fine carpentry, yeah. do end up almost always self-employed, from yeah. my understanding, except in a few cases. And I wonder, sometimes it's hubris, uh, sometimes it's I am want to be doing it the best and none of these other people know what they're doing and so I'm going to set off so I can do it my way and, it, and that's both, you know, obnoxious and wonderful because it's that, that ability to kind of pursue things the way that you want to be working and working in the way that you want to be working, which, which is, I think, I don't know what it is, but something about this craft pulls in people who don't like working in other settings and want to do things well <laughs> and want to enjoy yep. what they're doing and want to work at a very specific type of pace. And it's not always possible eventually a lot of people find out that running their own business they have to work their asses off but I think that there is definitely a uh, an interest sometimes you don't like working under someone else's time frames somebody else tells you how long it's supposed to take you to do a job somebody tells you you know how much effort you're supposed to put into it people who like getting into fine work I think tend to like to decide that for themselves to go, I'm gonna take on this project, I'm gonna put the amount of time I think is required, gonna put the amount of effort and consideration yeah. into the various aspects that I think are required. And I think that in, in a lot of ways, people who really care about their work end up going down that path, absolutely. But I do think I work for other people most of the time. And I really like working for other people in my field. And I like working for other people because there's a lot of aspects of the industry I don't like doing. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff around invoicing, sales. I really hate selling things. I just want to be doing work. I want to be at my bench and somebody gives me an object and they say this needs to be fixed and I spend as much time as possible fixing it doing the best job possible and then they give me the next thing. That's like my dream scenario. But uh, And then somebody yeah. else figures out how to make that profitable. And yeah. that's why I like working for other people. Is I show up and they tell me what to do and I'm 100% focused into what i'm doing i don't have to think about or I, I try to avoid thinking about how many hours i'm spending on it you know whether the client has said this or this other job that's coming up i can just shut my brain off to everything else that goes into running that business and do the task that's in front of me and i have definitely found yeah. that having managed a woodworking department coming back to that is is just delightful Going from a place where I was managing a department and doing quotes and managing staff and then yeah. coming back to a position where I just show up and somebody tells me what to do and I just try and do that as best as possible and they give me the freedom to do that is the best feeling for me. But I think that's a difficult thing yeah. to find. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's,
1: yeah, it's a diff- it's a difficult, difficult thing to think about. I think you've touched on some <clears throat> really important things there. That somewhat not obnoxious i think somewhat noble <laughs> um like desire to do things your way that you believe to be valuable which is the route i've gone down i think there's so many factors the way into it and and i think one of the the main things is often a craft person is not necessarily a business person like you just kind of touched on you don't you don't want to be involved with that side of it you don't you don't want to kind of it just needs to come in front of you and I don't want to be involved in the invoicing and all of those things, yeah. which I entirely understand. And like you said, being able to focus on the thing without worrying about the next job or worrying about what the customer is doing, all, all of this. And that's definitely something I experience, kind of. Although I can work in exactly the way I want and to an extent I can spend the time I want on a piece... It's always that looming factor of there's invoices to send. I need to think about the next job. I need to do this design, this quote. And it is hard. It's, it's bloody hard. And, and there's it, like you said, it, you, it, it's hard work. There's a lot of work to be done. And I've no doubt it's not for everyone. And I've been running my business for only um, a year or so, a year and a half. And thankfully so far it's going very well. But it almost at no point it's just making stuff the way i wanted to make stuff which is why i did it why i've i've come to work for myself so that is i think the the biggest factor really it's not as kind of ideal as it seems like yes you're 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 your own boss you can do what you like all of that but everything is on your shoulders everything is your problem before before i went to west dean i was working in a, in a shop and it was great i did exactly that i went into i went into work i was given this thing this is what we're doing today you've got a couple of hours make this whatever great i walk home and i forget about it i go to bed now there's no walking home and going go and forget about it because it's all on it's all my problem the customer's reaction is my problem the the expenses are my problem so great i'm now making the things i want to be making but there's a lot of cost that comes along with that not just monetary cost but there's a lot of cost that comes along with that and also just I think it takes a certain type of person which I've not decided I am yet (laughs) that I can call my day done at whatever stage and nobody can tell me otherwise yeah it takes quite a lot of willpower and motivation to do it to just work as much not as much as you can that's not necessarily healthy but to to just carry on to to do what you should be doing um and not just go to the easier jobs or oh I'm just going to go and send some emails or do some writing because yeah. I'm not feeling like doing the workshop or whereas if I was at work and I had a boss there fine I'd just crack on even if I wasn't necessarily happy about it you ain't got a choice so yeah by giving yourself that choice you also give yourself kind of a a difficult day sometimes which needs to be considered but then again I'm making the things I want to be making and I'm building something that I'm incredibly proud of and I'm proud to say I work for myself and my business is successful I mean there's 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 great things about it as well so it's always again all right yeah again the answer is I have no idea it it, I think (laughs) it's a character it's a character trait a lot of it a lot of it i don't think can be taught and learned
0: i've i've heard many times don't. that you know it's a it's a care like it's it's in your per- you, you know a certain type of person is going to find this more appealing and i, I think there are aspects yeah. of that that a certain type of person will immediately find this more appealing because a certain type of person is is i but i think that type of person is just someone who really cares a lot about what they do it's not someone who's made yeah. for you know doing invoices is someone who just no, really, really wants to be doing good work and if they can't find somewhere to do it for someone else, then then there is always an option to try and figure out how to do it for yourself. And and definitely but it's gonna be really hard. And I don't think that I don't like the idea of saying, you know, it's for a certain type of person and if you wanna do that, you know, somebody goes and they tries and they go, Oh, invoices aren't for me, maybe I was never made to run my own business. Well mm. no, invoices are hard for everyone who's used to working with wood they're just not what we do so if (laughs) you're struggling with them at first that's fine but it's going to take a lot of work to get over some of those things you have no one else to rely on to get them done definitely i don't think
1: anyone is a necessarily a business person first and then thinks i tell you what's going to make me millions woodworking (laughs) i I think think some people no no
0: i think some people do think that and then very quickly end up moving into i don't know 3d printers or something yeah mass producing
1: stuff yeah i think i think on the whole it's going to happen the other way around i love this thing and i'm passionate about this thing and i want to be doing this thing and the only way for me to do that is to work for myself how do i make that feasible
0: and and it's it's not easy I think I've, I've no, worked not, into a very good scenario where I work for a, a number of different people who I like the way they work and I can go and I show up and they have the jobs for me and I yeah. lend them my expertise-ish to, or at mm. least my assistance um to be able to, to work on those things and then i leave and the next day i work for someone else or i do a different project and that to me is a delightful way to be yeah but man that's not easy at all to find
1: yeah yeah really
0: difficult really difficult
1: and i think i think that's kind of most of the reason i went down the route i did i would just was never gonna find a place i could work where i was entirely happy that what i was doing was valuable to the extent i wanted it to be and what i feel to be the best use of my time in terms of impact and in terms of my development as well and in my skill in Various aspects. I maybe I would have found that if I if I kept looking, but I decided yeah. early on that that was going to
0: be harder than doing it myself. And so far, some, I'm yeah. somewhat
1: right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I think there's something beautiful about about us and our profession. Is that I think it's it's almost it's very anti. It's it's like the perfect union, essentially. It's we, we value our work and our craft so much that there's no chance that we're going to sit on an assembly line and just let someone else tell us that we need to be here a certain amount of time. Like, no, you either respect what we offer you or we'll just do it ourselves because we know we can. And I think, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's always a a delightful place to be.
1: It is. It is. I think there's a lot of kind of um, ideal, idealistic, romanticized view of kind of our field and, and I do think that can be more reality than, than people think, although I've just said it's really hard and, and all of this is really difficult. If you're able, if you're kind of, kind of um, strong enough in, in your mindset, it, it, <clears throat> it's feasible to work in that way no doubt it's feasible to work in that way if you're able to divide your time efficiently work in such a way that when you're in the workshop you can really focus on on the things you need to then that kind of romanticized view of woodworking is possible i think and it is talked shit about Often, and I appreciate that, the kind of Instagram woodworker, it's all very aesthetic and very pretty. And um, and our friend, Aaron, often takes the piss about that kind of thing. I get <laughs> that entirely. Yeah. Because <laughs> it does frustrate me as well. But like we mentioned before, that you're kind of playing the game. Yeah. But I think it, it... And don't don't be kind of misled into thinking that's what working for yourself is like. But it can be. Parts of it can be, definitely. But it's tough. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yep. So I guess it. I, I think... My final thoughts on that are that it's like renting versus owning a house. Like if you own the house, you're locked into it. That's your house. You know, you have to deal with every issue that comes. You've got to, this is, you know, it's the same as being independent. If something breaks, it's on you to fix it. If, if something doesn't go well, it's on you. You've got to look after it, but you reap all the benefits. You get to control that house as you get to add Uh, you know rooms to it or paint it however you want it's your house and in the end all the value that it has is yours if you rent you don't have to think about those things you you wake up in the morning and there's a big crack in the ceiling and you send off an email to someone and then you move on with your day and yeah and yeah you you lose money over a long period of time and in the end whatever value there is in the place isn't yours but on a day-to-day basis you aren't drained by having to look after that if something breaks it's not on you and I think yeah. that that's, that's kind of the difference between running your own business and and being employed the way that I see it anyway. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that, I think. <laughs> good luck, Mark. Yeah,
1: good luck, Mark. <laughs> good luck, Mark. Let us know what you're
0: doing, whether you're doing... Oh, uh, yeah, please or do. I'd love to
1: have an update. Um,
0: that'd be great. Uh, do you want to tackle the next question? Yeah, let's do it. This one... Is from my friend Robbie. Yay, um, yay, Robbie. <laughs> and regarding buying a new Veritas plate for his plane, because he's getting—he's actually—he's putting a lot of work into tuning up his planes. Um, today, he actually sent me a photo of of the work he'd been doing on the bottom of the plane to flatten it out. Oh, nice. Uh, really cool. But he bought. Um, a new veritas i think the mk2 or something like that blade that's that's like double thickness of the stanley blades yeah. no. um and he he wants to get it sharp so he's wondering how we feel about taking an old plane iron to the linisher to flatten the back instead of say buying a new one um, he's super yeah. hesitant but he's not entirely sure why mm. he thinks it might be okay I'm just going to read it the way he read it I'm, I'm yeah, super hesitant but I'm not entirely sure why I think it's partly a lack of control or certainty but also feels lazy and somehow insincere maybe not yeah. the right word but mm. so the question is about taking a, an old plane blade to a linisher as a way to flatten um, and if there yeah. are any legitimate reasons to not do that
1: it's a good question. It's a really good question. You said old plane iron and also Veritas new plane iron, which one I don't do you think know. We're... Okay.
0: Because he right. mentions buying a new Veritas and then he <laughs> talks about taking the old plane iron.
1: <laughs> Fine. So no. let's
0: just answer both.
1: Let's <laughs> yes, answer both. Well so firstly, Linisher I'm not familiar with. I'm assuming it from what I understand is a is a kind of belt sandery thing. But it's gonna be fatter than a belt well, sander. Yeah. It's gonna be a bit more reliable. Um fine. Okay. So I I think this largely well firstly i've i've made a few bullet points here and the first one i've just written depends on condition so which is the obvious one if i've got a new veritas blade i'm probably not going to take the back to a belt sander to a linisher hmm. because i'm assuming it's reasonably close it will need flattening no doubt but i can assume it's within the realm to do it do it on a on a stone on a steel plate on a piece of glass however you might do it by hand on an old iron, probably a different story. Some of those old blades have been absolutely... Well, all of them, if you buy an old plane, the back will be rounded over, almost no doubt. Um, some of them, mm. it it can be a substantial amount of material, which is obviously something to look for when you're buying, buying an old iron as well. But we've already got it. Um, so his issue is maybe it feels lazy and insincere, and I understand that entirely. Um, mm. It does feel somewhat kind of barbaric and quite a rough approach and I and I get that. Kind of practically, I don't see any issue with it unless it gets too hot. Um is the main thing. Yeah. And also one really important thing to add is you're gonna take it to the stones or to the sandpaper on glass or to a steel plate with abrasive anyway, after you've taken it to the linisher You're not gonna be going straight from the linisher unless you have belts going up to six thousand, eight thousand grit, which I don't know is a thing. Um still Mm. i wouldn't trust it your main issue with the linisher and where that word insincere which like you said I i don't think it's quite the right word but there might be kind of it's going to be more difficult to have a careful approach because it can go wrong so quickly would be my problem yeah personally i wouldn't be comfortable doing it because the amount of care and kind of thoughtfulness that has to go into that process and kind of stability of yourself or however you do it the amount of care that needs to go into that is huge. And I wager more so than on a flat plate or stone or doing it by hand because it just goes wrong so quickly. You lift the back of it. You've just made yourself the same amount of work again in a second, just like like that. And it's you're kind of back where you started. It, it takes kind of a really brief lapse of concentration. to to give yourself a huge time costly mistake. That would be my main concern. Having said that, if it's miles off, I think it's doable. I just wouldn't approach it with the idea that I'm working towards the finished edge. It's like when we were in Japan and Takami would talk about making the shape and then sharpening and honing. And he, he would refer mm-hmm. to those as very different things. Um, yeah. Making oh, yeah. the shape being, in this instance, two flat surfaces, as flat as possible. And then the honing being polishing those surfaces and maintaining them as yep. flat. I'd consider the linisher as making shape. Um, I'd even be hesitant to go right to the edge. But I do think it is a good option for... Flatten in the back if you are miles off. It terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me. And yeah. I don't know how kind of coarse those belts are. If I I'd, I'd want it to be uh, above a. a- 240 really because i just think it's so quick to go wrong and also you have to consider you're laying a flat surface on a belt so you've got sharp edges so any uneven pressure that edge can dig in and kind of throw it out of your hand or do something scary and unpredictable yeah, it, everything I think, about the
0: process is horrifying <laughs> yeah and yeah i actually get i get stuck really really on on how am i How am I holding this while I press it evenly against the linisher? I can't get quite past that. Yeah, definitely. I'm picturing, like, suction cups or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like
1: super gluing it to a block of wood. Yeah, because, I mean,
0: we've both worn our fingertips out on on sharpening stones because they just Mm. touch the stone a little bit and then wear through. A linisher, man, I'm going to... God, it takes a fraction
1: of a second... And yeah that's the thing it's a thin piece of metal you're holding also something the next bullet point I've got is just the familiarity you will get from doing it on stones and it will take time quite a bit of time depending on what you've got depending on what kind of setup you've got if you've got a nice piece of float glass and you've got a piece of 180 grit sandpaper on that you're gonna be able to get it down fairly quickly and you're probably not gonna lose a finger so <laughs> It, it's not going to be much slower if you can do that. And that's a fairly cheap way of doing it. You're not buying stones or anything. But also by doing that, I think you're gaining a really good familiarity with the hand position, the kind of the muscles you're using, um, the muscle memory. That is going to be so important when you're going back to sharpening that blade. Because once you've got that blade nice and flat, you're going to want to maintain it. If, you, if you're if you investing the time at this stage, then yeah, I, yeah, I I know you've kind of got the... You've got the inclination that you're gonna keep it that way, so I think there's value beyond the danger thing to to spend the time at the stones mm-hmm. and to spend the time applying that pressure in the places that it needs it, and I think it can yeah. be done reasonably quickly as well. Do you have anything to add other than that? Yeah, it's I, I mean, I've, I've tackled
0: a, a few. Yeah, I mean, I. Literally can't picture how I'm holding what is a flat piece of steel, a thin flat piece of steel, and trying to press it against a quickly moving abrasive sheet and putting it onto that surface with the entire surface touching simultaneously so that I'm getting a flat and then lifting it off of that surface so the entire surface lifts off evenly and I don't tip it in one direction. I believe thoroughly in the ability of getting good at hand work and and controlling your body, but that is something I can't picture doing, and that's, I guess, one of the things. Something I want to add, though, is I think with sandpaper stuff, whether it's, it's a the Linisher or the Pro Edge, like the one we had at Westine, yes, or using yeah. sandpaper on float glass. Because we at the Bauer got students to flatten backs with extremely coarse 60 grit paper, um, cloth backed yeah. paper on, on glass. But something to be aware with that is that the paper does lift up a little bit on the sides. You kind of press the paper down and it's like yeah. pressing into a pillow. And so it does curl up on the sides. So you have to go to a stone or something flatter afterwards and spend quite a bit of time flattening it again after the sandpaper i think Mm. down to the the amount that it curled up on the side yeah and that's something to take into account so if your blade to begin with if the variation in it is less than the amount that the sandpaper is going to curl up Mm. the edge around your edge then don't do it absolutely don't do it if it's way more than that then mm. yeah, because then you're gonna bring it back to close you bring it closer to flat and then you can work to something else like that. That's kind of yeah, what I would think about it. Um, Do you
1: know how Robbie you said he sent you the photo of the sole of the plane? Yeah. Did it did he take that to a linisher? I'm assuming he's got access to a linisher if he's asking the question. Do you know how he did the sole of the plane? Because in theory, you could do that. So um,
0: he said flat steel and one fifty stone, which I'm not entirely sure what that means, but that's what he said. Flat steel and one fifty stone. Twenty five um, minutes. To f- to flat it.
1: from old plane.
0: Uh, to pretty close. It's it's. I mean, the the majority of the length of it is flat. It's um lifting up at the front and the back a little bit. Yeah. But that's yeah. not the end of the world with with the plane. Yeah, I think. I'd do it on a stone or on
1: glass or something, <laughs> I think. Get in touch when you do it, yeah. Robbie. I'd love to know how you do it. I don't know how helpful we've been other than telling you that we're terrified. I've, in the shop I used to work in years ago, we had two or three chisels that were dedicated to like completely being abused. So like chopping off bits of really hard filler, even spreading filler, like those kind of painter's chisels, mm-hmm. like plastic handles. And yeah. we used to clean them up on a disc sander and that was quite scary. So it it was usually taken off filler, but you kind of you end up with two flat surfaces, and it's a case of kind of yeah. holding it and gently levering it onto the disc sander. Oh Christ, scary! I don't, I do I, not I, like it.
0: I took the bottom of um, of my number seven plane that I, I just ended up getting rid of yeah. to to a disc sander because it was so out of flat. Um, yeah. And it's still out of flat after a lot of time. That reminds me though, something you mentioned really quickly was the heat thing. And that's really important because if you yeah, change the yeah. temper of the steel by getting it too hot, then you've ruined the whole blade immediately. So that's, that alone is, is something that makes me concerned about that process. Mm, definitely, definitely. I remember when I first learned the concept of sharpening, it, it was in a, an events um, carpentry workshop. And, and it was a file. I think it was a steel file that we were using. Yeah. Better than not sharpening.
1: I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, what have you been up to, Shane? What have you been doing? Uh, cutting threads. I oh, you have been
0: cutting course. threads. I have been cutting threads. Yes. Um, oh, so many things. Um, tell us about the threads yeah. first. Threads were great. I kind of want to do more of them but I don't need to do more of them. I need to finish that <laughs> job and give it back to the person who owns it. That was great. That was such a good project because it's these these legs that go into a portable fizz if anyone knows what that is. It's like a I bomb type thing oh, um, but the legs sc- screw into it so you can you can carry it um and two of them the threads have have broken on it as they do so i had to splice new timber onto them because we don't have the thread cutter of the size and shape of that particular one and we don't have a fancy enough lathe to be able to do something like that in timber so i just spliced um new pieces of timber on shaped it to round by hand and then cut new thread into it which was it was right on the edge of in skills wise right on the edge in that perfect sweet spot where i've never done it before Mm. i've acquired enough rough skills to know how to use the tools i need and i understand theoretically an approach based off of arian and sam doing barley twists at, Uh, um, at west dean yeah, and and I remember ta- I never did a barley twist, which now I regret. <laughs> but I remember talking to them a lot about their process, particularly Sam figuring out how to do a tapered barley twist, which was really, yeah. really cool. So I did that process of measuring out, getting my spiral drawn on, hand sawing the the depth of the internal, and then yeah. paring down to that line to get that and and with the first one i was thinking a lot about when when you said before you know with joinery for yourself in the past it was always if this goes together it's going to be lucky and that's how i felt for the first one and then for the second one i tried to have that mindset of no this is going to be because i'm doing it it will go together because i'm doing it right and i'm following my lines um yeah and that was i was trying to have that progression through that process as well. Did you um, cut down to
1: your depth cut with a straight chisel? Like the the V cut, did you do that with a straight chisel like from either side? I did, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes I sense.
0: tried it a number of different ways on the first one and the second one I cut down to it with a straight chisel and then I came along so- like sideways along it to clean it up. Yeah. Um, so I kind of did, I did all these chunky not like straight cut notches yeah. And then um, and then tidied it up that's
1: really cool. And those threads... It's still a... not...
0: I'm still not happy. Like, if I put it up against the one that was obviously cut with a, you know, a, a cutter... A thread cutter, It's yeah. not as clean. It's it's just not... It's not as clean as I want it to be. It's not following the line as precise. So, I. that's why I want to do a third one and see yeah. if I can get it to really just look. Yeah. But that was perfect project right on the edge of of my skill something i'd never done before getting the chance to do two of them in a row wonderful my ideal kind of project at this point in my career. yeah
1: that's really cool really really cool um, and how did the finishing calls go
0: it's so hard to tell <laughs> it was chaotic which i knew yeah. it was going to be because i was trying to pack a lot in and I don't I really don't settle for just telling people what to do and then they do it and in, and then that's it I really in in deep in my heart of hearts i need them to understand why they're doing what they do yeah and i can't get over that so for us the the idea of the finishing course as i put it was to was to scratch everything you you know or think or care about with finishing we're not going to be trying to to get perfect results but we're just building up a language to understand what we're doing yeah. um which is almost sometimes harder to teach i think and it's really hard for me to know how effective it was because everyone walked out and they went wow this was really great and what a wonderful day and you know they did all the things that i told them to do but you know if if i don't know if they actually truly understood the things that no. i was trying to get them to understand i'm not sure i'll ever know no um, Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where if if a year from now all the students come back to me and they start telling me things that they've done since then that make no sense um, (laughs) and didn't work, then I'm going to know that that it didn't work. But at the moment it felt really good. Good, good. So, yeah, we got through everything. Mm -hmm. The timing on it was right. We did, um, we made varnish together. We talked about ingredients. We talked about the differences between oils and solvent finishes. And we then did, you know, using a cloth to put oily finishes on uh brushed a thicker varnish and then we did brushing schlack and kind of a really really basic french polish um yeah. and one of the things that i wanted to make clear also was that that you know give it a go have a good like have fun with this don't be intimidated by these materials because a yeah. bunch of them had actually done a, a french polishing course that was a week-long course where they did a little bit of the Polish, like, and that really, you do a little bit today, and you do a little bit the next day, and you know, it's a whole week long time to do one panel. Cool. Wow. Well, yeah. And I was, I was just like, yeah, but. I mean, you can get a super satisfying finish in like an, a half an hour of, of rubbing a cloth against yeah. a piece of wood. So let's do that so that like this is something you now think is fun because everyone who walked out of that course was like, I'm, I'm never doing it. I'm never going to try no. it. It's too much. It's no. too intimidating. You can get a beautiful finish by rubbing a fat against a piece of timber for 20 minutes. Yeah.
1: That's brilliant. Really good. <clears throat> and it makes it makes it feel accessible,
0: doesn't it? That was the goal. Yeah. Yeah and to, and to try and demystify some of the things that that's what i want i want people to be able to walk down a, a finish aisle and and actually feel like they know what they're looking at or when they read something on a forum or some advice that that they're not just taking the advice word for word because they don't know how to think about it they actually have the language themselves to assess that information yeah that's that's, that's really what cool. i want out of that course amazing and i think it went well.
1: Good, okay. good, and it was a good bunch, good bunch of students. Yeah, a really good group of students. Yeah.
0: Nice thing about the Woodworkers Association is is they are dedicated woodworkers who've been doing it for a while. So yeah. you know, if I tried to run that course with Bauer, for instance, mm. you'd have a lot of students who'd be like, yeah, this isn't can we just get on with the next thing? Because this this isn't what I'm looking for." Whereas with with that group, they they definitely were keen to hear out some of the longer explanations of things, which was really cool. Nice one that's brilliant yeah what have you been up to
1: uh what have i been doing doing lots of things lots of things i finished my hedgehog houses which was Mm -hmm. great fun there was it ended up being quite quite repetitive because there's eight of them and they're all made as kits just kind of pre-drilling all the joinery but a lot of really nice challenges kind of how to make these kits go together in such a simple way that young kids can do it yeah but in the they also learn a little bit of how to use tools so it's not kind of just done for them, but also they I want them to last a long time, so there's got to be an an element of good construction um so it it was a bit of a challenge, but they turned out great. I think six of eight have been put together, and they look so mm-hmm. cool and they they've got they're rescuing hedgehogs, so they're definitely going to have hedgehogs in them. Um, I think the hedgehog lady uh, cool. came by yeah, so the hedgehog lady came by, and she really liked the houses and decided it was all it was all good to go. So I think they might even have awesome. hedgehogs in them already. Yeah, awesome. really, really, really cool. Um, I couldn't get in to teach it with the kids because of, of the lockdown, lockdown, which was a bit unfortunate, yeah. but it all went really well. I wrote a little how-to, put them together for, for um John, the guy that was doing it with them. Um, yeah, just a really satisfying project. <clears throat> Although the larch I really used cool. had... It's not. It's not kiln dried. It it's reasonably green. Had a high moisture content, so it just like made a mess like of my bandsaw of everything. Uh, it was no. just like sticky. It's because it's quite resinous as well. Um, yeah. So everything. I only used my wooden body plane just because I didn't want to go through the effort of cleaning my metal planes. So I, I was wondering my...
0: why you were using your wooden body
1: plane. Yeah. I. I just. It's just not worth it for the steel plane. It doesn't stick to the to the timber as much as the other ones. So it was just really cleaning the blade and resharpening it. Um, yeah. So that was a challenge, but it was great. And I, I did really enjoy that project. Um, I've also been making progress on my drawers again, still feels like it's going on forever. <laughs> so it's been a real, a real challenge this one because the drawers are massive um, and the machinery I've got access to and the space I've got access to is really been the bottleneck, so I need yeah. the sides, fronts, and backs of these drawers. I want them reasonably thin they're about ten mil ish thick um, but they're really wide the The bottom drawers are three hundred and seventy mil deep so they're they're beasts. Um, yeah. I obviously can't resaw that in my workshop that depth, so every single piece is made of strips and then glued up because I can only really reliably resaw up to about 100mm deep without wasting too much. Right. Above that, and I've noticed it, it's just too much for the saw, and it, it, it'll do it, but you end up with a worse cut and you end up wasting the timber. The fronts, fortunately, I had a massive board that I ripped into strips and glued back together, so they look like a piece, like one piece. But it's a case of taking the board, ripping it into strips, and then re-sawing every single one of those into thicknesses and then gluing those boards back together. So it, it's a real job. The but the the benefit. So I I've done the fronts and the backs. So today this afternoon I'm going to do all the sides, get them glued up. Um, the benefit of it is I've got really good at jointing edges, which is so yeah. satisfying. So I, the, my process of yeah. taking two boards with a rough band sawn edge and getting that to a nice flat square jointed edge that that just clicks together really nicely has become really fast. So. And it's a cool process. So I'm doing two at a time, so I'm not too bothered about square as such. As long as they're close, it corrects it by doing the two in the vice at the same time. For the sake of the iron in my big number six Clifton plane, I don't plane Mm -hmm. the bandsaw edge with it because it makes Mm -hmm. the edge of the plane just dull so much quicker. So I take my wooden four plane, take all the bandsaw marks out, get it reasonably flat, reasonably straight, then use my Clifton to just clean those up and now kind of eight out of nine boards go first try which is so satisfying i mean kind of plane them take them out of the vice and it's a good joint i finally got to grips with the idea which sounds really odd because it's one of the first things you learn of applying pressure when you're planing an edge on the plane so it's always kind of taught you apply pressure on the front as you start the cut and then the pressure kind of um transforms to the back of the playing as you go off the end. Yeah. And that that ensures you get a straight edge. Otherwise, you tend to get a convex surface. I've just never got to yeah. grips with it. And it, I've always, it's always been playing the edge, and then I can pretty much just take some strokes out of the middle because I know I've played a convex edge. But I finally yeah. got to grips with doing that and getting straight edges, which has been really satisfying and kind of...
0: Really? You know, yeah. I'm, I, I'm surprised that that's something you still...
1: Yeah, so am I, because I've been jointing edges for a long time, in yeah. relatively long time, So <laughs> <laughs> in terms of my life. So it's, yeah, been an odd one, but it, it, I don't know, it was weird, it was actually only last night that it kind of clicked, and I was like, oh, fuck yeah, this yeah. is a piece of piss, I can just, I can just do it. Yeah. Um, I'm not checking for square, I'm not checking for flat, they just go, which is great. Yeah. Cause That's cause the I've,
0: wonderful thing when the plane works yeah
1: and and to do that you obviously need a flat yeah it's almost as if it's designed for it but obviously to do that you need a really keen edge and you need a flat sole so I've been doing lots of sharpening as well but yeah it's also really handy because I've got oh god knows 50 odd ball of these strips to glue up for the draw sides um so yeah it's getting there really getting there now is this whole process has made me progressed the idea of building a new workshop because i need the space i was just kind of getting increasingly frustrated in my lack of space um so i started Mm -hmm. doing some drawings for a new workshop which is a long way off but i'm starting to consider it which is really exciting that's awesome Uh, um what else have you doing? that's it really been doing some drawings that's it
0: there was something else i wanted to actually mention not something i'm doing but I should mention, because in the first few weeks, um, I was talking about that apothecary box, and I haven't made any progress on it. Yeah. But part of the reason why I haven't made any progress on it is that it's actually similar to what you were talking about with, with just struggles with workshop. Yeah. And not having the facilities. So I'm actually going down to Robbie's workshop as a Christmas present to myself the week of... Christmas and New Year's mm. and I'm going to be pretty much working out of his workshop for the whole week just to make that apothecary box okay. I'm so excited about it
1: that's really cool that's really yeah. exciting
0: I'm thrilled I'm not looking forward to packing up all of my tools that I want for that job no. to go down and do it but no. I'm really excited you know what you need just, there's nothing better than you wake up in the morning and you work on a project and like that's all you do every day for a whole week it's mm. like a holiday awesome do you you know what you need don't you you need
1: tires on your toolbox
0: (laughs) i thought you're gonna say i need um a poster to remind me how to do woodworking
1: oh that too that too yeah that's the thing i've done as well um i have some posters for sale of my paintings of woodworking tools so go to my website if you want one of them they're fun i'm super proud of them Right on that note, I'm gonna wrap it up. I gotta to get to the workshop. I'm gonna be late again. Yeah. Thanks All for right. listening, guys. Thanks for the questions. There's they're really good fun. Um, if you got any yeah. more, also, Robin, and Mark, give us a follow up. Let us know. Let us know what you what you're doing. Awesome. Thanks for All listening, right. guys. Thank you. See ya. See you later.